I think that sounds good. Let's do it. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. My name's Brendan. You know that. But you might be saying, is that Brendan? Is that Brendan speaking? Well, it is, okay? But you might notice, voice sounds a little different, sounds a little bad. Sounds like someone who worked in a coal mine for 70 years. Now, what happened was, this episode was supposed to be released on Monday, but it's not released on Monday. It's released on Wednesday. Why? Well, why is because after 23 years, 24 years, in fact, 24 years on planet Earth, in my body, my larynx has finally decided to pack its bags and leave and go about its day. It was sick of the damage. It was sick of the alcohol. It was sick of the spicy food. It was sick of all of it. It left. It said, said, Brendan, I'm out. See you. I'm leaving. Okay? I know you need me to speak, but I'm gone. All right? And it left my body, and I haven't seen it since. Okay? You never realize, actually, how uncreative you are with your hands until you have to use sign language because you can't speak. Okay? Listen, I go to art. I am a PhD student at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and one thing about them is they are one of the only universities in the world that has like a dedicated community of deaf people, thousands of them. And they have classes that they teach in sign language and then, you know, the whole thing, right? The whole campus is like sign language proof. But I see these people and they're doing their American sign language and they're doing their gestures and they're doing all sorts of stuff. But I only know three hand gestures, thumbs up, middle finger and time out. And so for a whole weekend, all I could do was either thumbs up middle finger or time out and honestly if we're being real like those three are actually pretty good thumbs up is like affirmation middle finger is like i don't agree with you and then time out is like hold slow down boil this down to a yes or no question and then i can use that one of the other two to help you sir but if you're asking me complex questions with complex answers i can't okay so ask me yes or no i'll give you thumbs up for yes i'll give you middle finger for no because that's all i could do so, you know, the waiter would be like, Brendan, what do you want to drink with, with dinner? And I would just have to hit him with the timeout. I'd be like, you need to go through the menu. You need to say, Brendan, do you want water? And I'll give you a no. Brendan, do you want Coke? No. Brendan, do you want an IPA? I'll give you the thumbs up. Now we're on the same page. Okay? So, you know, that's just how my life had to be the past few days. But we're recovering. As you can tell, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You might be, if you're familiar with me, then you know, you would realize there's a difference here. If you're not familiar with me, then you'd be like, damn, this guy's so nasally. This guy needs to get some nasal cleansing. He needs to put some Vicks Vapo rub on his skull. But anyway, welcome to the show. Episode number 63, featuring the great Brian Keating. Brian Keating is a professor of physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at the University of California, San Diego, UCSD. That is so many names, so many titles, but he's got more because he's also the director of the Simons Observatory, which is out there trying to find evidence for the very thing that kickstarted our universe. And he's also the author of an amazing book, Losing the Nobel Prize. I read it. You should read it. It's now available in paperback. Everywhere books are sold as of Monday. That's why this episode was supposed to be released on Monday, but it wasn't released on Monday because it was released on Wednesday because I didn't have a voice. My larynx didn't work and my larynx is gone. It left. It took his bags. It went away. I don't have it anymore. 24 years. Now I got to live with that one and I don't know what to do. So I encourage you to go buy it. Check it out. But you might be saying, Brendan, I can't afford the paperback. Okay, I can't afford the paperback. can't afford a hardcover. If you can't afford them, go buy them both. If you can't afford them, here's what you can do. We here at the State of the Universe are giving away some copies. You just need to do 
a few things for me. Actually, you only need to do one thing for me. Okay? You only need to do one thing for me. So, as long as you do one of these four things, then you are eligible to win a copy. And I'll be, I'll be announcing the winners in like a week, and I'll ship you the book, and everything will be great. Okay? You need to either have supported the show financially in the last year. If you were a PayPal donator, if you were a Patreon subscriber, you're already in. If you're not one of those and you want to become one, become one, and then you're in. It's easy as that. Just give one dollar. One dollar makes you eligible. Okay? That's a one dollar bargain for like a twenty dollar book. Can't beat it. The other option, be on the mailing list. Go to thestateoftheuniverse.com, sign up for the mailing list, and you're on. You're in. You can win. Okay? Doesn't require any money. Just requires a little effort. You can put out effort. You put out effort every day. What do you do? You get up. You do stuff. You blink. You breathe. It's fine. You probably have a larynx, so you're doing better than I am. Also, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. This is another way to win the book. If you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, we will enter you in the drawing. Now, try to um, have a good name. Don't have a weird name on Apple Podcasts like, you know, um, I don't know, uh, 420Quickscoper72016. That doesn't help me identify who you are. If you do have a bad name on Apple Podcasts that I can't, like, understand who you are, then just fill out the contact on my website and say, Hey, Brendan, I am, you know, bedsheetman6267, and my name is this, and my contact email is this. And then we'll be good to go. The other option, be a YouTube subscriber, comment on the video, telling me your favorite part of the interview. Just do one of those four things, and you're eligible to win the books. We'll be sending out a few copies. So do it, okay? I hope you enjoy the episode with Brian Keating. We discuss cosmology, what what we know about how the universe was formed. We talk about the early universe, dark matter, dark energy, gravitational waves. Can we detect them from the very beginning of the universe? The universe, the, the, the Big Bang, did it produce gravitational waves that we can detect today? We talk about the multiverse. We talk about a bunch of other stuff. Please support the show. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review the show. Patreon, PayPal, Twitter, Instagram. You know the drill. Spotify, Stitcher. Just do it. Okay? It helps. Helps to grow. Even if you just hit the five-star button, it takes you two seconds, and it helps a lot. So go do it. All right? And with that being said, people, thanks for listening, and we're out. Universe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, man, it's fear, right? Fear drives yeah. me to try to do that. I don't want that yeah, to you don't want to miss out. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, it's great to have you back. I, I'm, I'm glad you came. I don't know if you remember, Brian, but when you came on before, I think you were episode nine. Okay. okay. Uh-huh. Now you'll be episode 64, I think. Wow. And, and by the time this episode drops, people will be able to get your paperback yep. book from of losing the Nobel Prize um, at everywhere, right? Is that yeah. correct? Anywhere yeah. books are sold, you can get the paperback. And paperbacks, listen, people, paperbacks are so much better because hardcovers, they have this thing. I don't know what this thing is, this little sleeve. I hate the sleeve. I don't know what it is about jacket. the sleeve. The dust jacket. I it's, always hated it, too. It falls yeah. off, gets on the floor. You don't want that. And, yeah, how, and much, the, how much dust is really piling up in people's lives? I mean, dust cost me a Nobel Prize, arguably. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I don't know it's how everywhere. much dust yeah. is really uh, building up around the world. Yeah, tons of it. I got a dust in my apartment today. Thanks for reminding <laughs> me. I, I better get to that before it ruins my life. Get um, the dust buster, yes. Yeah. Anyway, Brian, I, last time you came on, we talked a ton about the book. And more specifically, you know, I was talking about this before the show, but I talked in particular, because I'm interested in it, about the three chapters that you devoted to understanding the Nobel, reformatting the Nobel, revising the way the Nobel is given out, addressing some of the controversies that have affected the Nobel, and we spent the better part of an hour talking about that last time. But the book also covers something else fantastically, 
It covers cosmology. It really is a fantastic cosmology book. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of an experimental cosmologist. You know, you've had on great deal of, of great theoretical uh, physicists on, on, your, on your podcast, which I uh, subscribe to and enjoy very much. It's a great pleasure to be both in the uh, single-digit episode, now the double-digit episode, yeah. next time triple-digit, we'll and you in then the triple, yeah. beyond. we got to make it a date. Uh, but in the case of uh, the book, I really wanted to communicate what it's like to not be a brainiac like Lisa Randall or Brian Greene or somebody like that who's pursuing scientific ideas with the you know fervency to try to make up a theory that may be correct but you know they say you know a, a theorist only has to be right once in her life to get a world famous reputation mm -hmm. and an experimentalist only has to be wrong once to ruin right. his reputation you know thankfully uh, we you know we were wrong but but perhaps uh, perhaps we can rehabilitate our, our our you know reputations as we build new and improved experiments building on lessons that we learned in the past so I wanted to communicate how exciting modern day cosmology is and where else can you really have opinions and bring data to opinions rather on everything from the you know content of our galaxy the matter in our en energy in our universe and whether or not there are multiple universes you can't purely speculate on that you know people have been speculating on the nature of of the number of planets and stars and galaxies for many, many thousands of years, it turns out. But only now do we have potentially the technological means to ascertain whether or not our Big Bang was unique. And I find that tremendously fascinating. It is tremendously fascinating. And, and you know, this is a interesting thing that I've been pondering recently. Because when I had you on the show last time, uh, you said something to me. You, you said cosmology felt like the, the big question. That's what yeah. drew you to it, right? And That's I've right. listened to you on other shows, and you, and you say that too, like, that's a, that's a something you have in your head that cosmology was for you the big question. Yeah. And I'm always interested in scientists and the reason they do science and the reason they feel compelled to answer the questions they answer. And the conclusion that I seem to be coming to is that everyone has in their head the big question. They have it built in. They have an idea of what their own personal big question is, right? So cosmology is your big question. My big question is something different. Actually, this is a, a side note, but... Nevertheless, something that made me realize I'm way too involved in the internet earlier today. I was thinking, you know, going through the show notes yesterday and today and, and preparing the questions I want to ask you, the topics I want to cover. And I was thinking about this exact conversation and I thought to myself, what is my big question? And right. what I did, Brian, this was terrible, is I opened up a new tab on Google Chrome and I almost typed, what is my big question? <laughs> that is a terrible indication of yeah. our alliance on this. Stuff. But, you know... Um, everyone has different big questions. And if you look at surveys for scientists, there doesn't seem to be a clear indication for why people do science. Like, there's no one reason. It's spread across the board. It's not localized. It seems everything to do with childhood, though. Everyone's childhood experience, see, every scientist you talk to, their big question seems to be well-defined in their er, in their adolescence. It just seems to be connected to something, some curiosity they had. And I, I'm listening to the interview, particularly the one you did with Ben Shapiro, which was a, a great interview, by the way. Um, I was listening to that, and I'm wondering, to what degree does your religious confusion in your early life play into your your identification of cosmology being the big question? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, 
when I think about it, and I didn't get into too much detail on, on Ben Shapiro's show because it's just so much broader, but uh, there are you know two interesting parallels between my work profession and you know perhaps my hobby of you know being a practicing agnostic, as I call it, uh, devout agnostic, and that is that we're concerned with the origin of things and how did the universe come mm-hmm. to be. So you're you know you're concerned with the current state of the universe and and how it got here. I guess my fascination and passion is both whether or not we could actually prove or disprove the existence of some you know benevolent creator who, who might be perceived in in various world tradition religions differently but in our case you know if you had evidence for example for a cyclic universe for a universe that's unending in time that would seem to me to contradict many of the descriptions of the classical religious uh, faiths, which I practice, you know, again, uh, I consider myself a, an agnostic, but, but an agnostic is not merely someone who just doesn't know and doesn't care, but practices, tries to understand through ritual and rite how do different traditions actually reconcile with these ultimate questions as you just brought up. Yeah. And you know, this is why conversation is so good because now like the, these ideas that I ponder in my head and I work out and I try to read a lot and try to figure them out. They get expanded when I listen to someone like you speak because um, what I'm realizing now is that, in fact, maybe what you just said might be a fallacy because is there ever any way to to prove or disprove the creator? Um, right. Right? Because even if you found evidence that, say, this is a cyclical universe, okay, when did the cycle start? Right. You know, were they going on forever? What does forever mm-hmm. even mean? Um, yeah, that's like when people say, you know, if God is uh, eternal, you know, who created God? And, you know, those those questions go back to antiquity. I don't I don't think there's particularly, you know, it's sort of solipsism, infinite mm-hmm. re- regress, if you will. But in the case of uh, where, where the Bible, in my case, it's the only religious text I'm familiar with, the Old Testament, the, the uh, Torah, etc. If you... Um, if if you look in there, there's only two cases where there's a reward promised. There's an actual reward promised for obeying these commandments that are given. Mm-hmm. And, and to religious practicing Jewish people, they believe there's not just ten commandments. That's you know that's for that's for everybody to adhere to. But if you're a practicing Jewish person. There's 613 commandments. Now, some of them are pretty Jesus. easy. Yeah, Jesus. No, that, that's oh, a different No, not thing. Jesus. No. <laughs> uh, holy but, cow. Is that better? Holy cow. Holy cow. That's, yeah. one of the, that's actually one of the commandments. So oh, there's a commandment that. that you should find a red heifer, a cow mm. that's completely red. And once you do, you're supposed to do certain things to it, and that will uh, atone for certain sins, etc. Um, so it's interesting how much of the lexicon that we use every day uh, relies on things in the Old Testament. But one of the – I mean – some of the commandments are very easy. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't believe that you slept with your mother-in-law recently. So, you know, that might be pretty easy to, nope. to yeah. obey. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, yes. on, on many counts, hopefully. But, uh, <laughs> you know, some of them are harder. You know, obey mm-hmm. your mother and father. Honor your mother and your father. What exactly yeah. does that mean? It turns out that has a reward promised for it. And the question of can you – by not observing the reward upon practicing the contingent, uh, the contingent clause honoring your parents, mm-hmm. um, if you can observe that I honored my parents and I did not get this reward of lengthening my life, then you could uh, somehow uh, falsify the Old Testament. So I found that very fascinating. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, yes. Upgrade to the kind of Blaise Pascal's wager of you know you should essentially obey it because even if it's wrong. 
uh, if it's wrong and and you don't obey it, then nothing bad happens. If it's if there is a God and you don't obey it, then you have infinite eternal damnation. Mm-hmm. And so if you go through the game theory payoff matrix, it behooves you in all you know, in on the three quarters scenario to actually obey the commandments, even if God doesn't exist. So. I think that's very fascinating. I want to take it a step further. But uh, but I think the commonality between the Bible, you know, look, the Bible's mostly about laws. As I say in the in the podcast with Ben Shapiro, you you can read this book and it's got one page out of a thousand pages mm-hmm. that's plausibly associated with cosmology, you yeah. know, the, the big creation of the now uh, you know, we can we can get into how how much it's supposed to be treated as a as a science book. I think it not at all. Uh, mm-hmm. but but let's say you do ascribe that it still is beginning with the Big Bang. It's in a sense, it's still beginning with a singular creation in the beginning. Right. It's very clear about that. So I feel like my research, if I could, you know, it's not what I write in my NSF grants, right? Uh, mm-hmm. but but the implication of searching for the multiverse could be seen as countervailing evidence to the biblical creation narrative. I think that's fascinating. And what's most fascinating, I should just add, is that no one in my religion or any other religion forbids me from asking that question, which, you know, maybe that wasn't true four or 500 years ago. So not only do we live in the best time technologically, in the history of humanity in which telescopes like mine, the Simons Observatory with my colleagues, Mm Uh, that could actually reveal the presence or lack thereof of a multiverse, that that uh, is occurring at a time when we have the most freedom of investigation and greatest resources to pursue these investigations. I'm just so tickled that I live in such a universe right now. Yes, we do live in a fantastic time for all of science, except for the fact that I have a cold right now. So I think like three days ago was better for me. Mario Livio, who I don't know if you've had him on your show, but you should. No. Uh, he's a phenomenal scientist. He he tweeted to me something today that you know they think they might have found a cure for the common cold. So maybe maybe this will be the last cold you ever get, Brandon. I, See, I, I had a I had a, an expert on on common colds come on the show. Oh wow! And um uh and we talked to him, and he assured me that even if we do find the cure for the common cold, it is overwhelmingly likely that they won't give it to people like you and I. Oh really? Um, yes, because and the reason is that you you don't want to develop viruses that are resistant to our back yeah. to to our uh, you know antiviral Antibiotic medications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we would likely just give it to people who need it the most, like really old people or really young people. So mm-hmm. I'd be suffering anyway. But all right, you know, it's, nevertheless, you're sick, of, you're sick of being so healthy. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> so Brian, cosmology. Could you? This is asking so much of you, in broad strokes. Okay. For people who, who maybe know the Big Bang, they have an idea of what that means, but maybe not a clear idea, could you walk us through the the model of the early universe? So what spurred all of this? And I know that you don't necessarily know that answer, but what happened in the moments after that to lead us to where we are today? And then we'll break down some aspects of that that I think yeah. are important. That's actually an easier question than the question that you know interests me most, which is what happened before the Big Bang? Yes, you know, what and we'll talk on, about that too. Yeah, what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang? Let's get back to that. So the Big Bang, you know, Sean Carroll has said and others have said, should rightfully be treated as either the end of our ignorance or the beginning of our knowledge of the universe. In other words, we can look back from our perspective now, uh, seemingly uh, 13.8 billion years after the origin of what we can observe in our universe. That is all the light that's had enough time to travel to our telescopes unimpeded without getting obstructed by something in the entire history at which a photon could plausibly be uh, present 
and exist and travel with infinite lifetime, but travel through those 13.9 billion years and enter into our telescope. That's the observable universe. Mm -hmm. uh, the question of what happened before that uh, is, is, is an important one, but really it, it's predicated on how the universe uh, we call the Big Bang. When does it? Where does our knowledge of quantitative information about the universe begin? It certainly doesn't begin at what you might call time equals zero, right. which is sometimes conflated with the Big Bang, mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it's separate. And we say it's just the origin of the universe. And and always you should understand universe is observable universe because we can have zero knowledge about something that's unobservable, namely. Right. What might be happening a light year in the distance beyond our 13.9 mm -hmm. billion year or 8 billion year um, uh, age of the universe. So yes. be that as it may, what we really mean is the uh, when we talk about the Big Bang, we're really talking about what we know after the universe fused hydrogen into helium. We understand essentially very little about anything that occurred long, long before that. And again, you're a scientist, and so you can think in kind of logarithmic or exponential terminology. Mm -hmm. So a scientist cares very little about um, you know one second versus two seconds in the early universe. We care right. a lot about a billionth of a second as compared to a millionth of a second. The, those mm -hmm. are very different epochs, the physics right. that the temperature density energy spectrum in the universe radically different as mm -hmm. you go back to the logarithmic orders of magnitude and time so we really understand the universe fairly well after i would say about a second after the big bang mm -hmm. all the way up till today so that's 13.9 billion years but uh, but we don't have any knowledge about that first second but that's crucial because right. in that first second were all the properties on a large scale at least of how our universe would evolve to look so I would say we, our knowledge of the Big Bang is as, not, is, is as certain as almost any field of physics. We know the abundance of, of elements and particles. Mm -hmm. We know how they later became the heavier elements, heavier than hydrogen, helium, and lithium. And we understand how photons could have evolved. We even know for sure that there was dark matter and dark energy, although mm -hmm. we have no idea currently what those are comprised of. So we understand a great deal in one sense, but then we – as often happens, you know, if you look at a pendulum swinging back and forth, you can describe the system very well, but you can't actually know, say you know everything unless you know about its initial conditions. Right. How did the pendulum start? Was it swing uh, swung, you know, uh, at 20 degrees, 30 degrees, one degree? That has a radical difference um, in terms of what the implications are in a future system, even in a simple system like a pendulum, a one-dimensional oscillator. But let alone if you think about the entirety of the all the particles and energy in the universe that we can observe today mm -hmm. yeah this is an interesting point and, and it's a point that anyone with a background in physics or math should understand or anyone in general like you, your ability to predict a system is only as good as as um understanding where it began that's right like, that's true yeah if you learn in the field of differential equations which essentially is you know describes every single thing around you every day no matter mm -hmm. who you are you know from the from you know water to light to to everything, air travel, driving, all of it has an inherent reliance on the field of differential equations. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if, yes. you ever, if you ever talk to a mathematician who, know, who who practices this stuff, and this is what I spent the better part of my undergraduate career and, and part of my graduate <laughs> career doing is, is solving these equations, you'll realize that, you know, mathematicians that study these things, they they think that their big question, and in fact, the only question, is how you solve some of the more advanced, you know, equations. In order to do that, you need to understand how they started, exactly. what, what started them, what were the properties like at the beginning, because then the equation will tell you how it propagated. And so, That's Brian, right. what is the closest observation we can get to how it all started? 
So what we can see as we look through our telescopes, as I said on the Ben Shapiro show, it's very difficult to be an astronomer because you can't do an experiment. We can't change the dark energy density in the universe and say, how would that affect the orbits of planets around extrasolar suns? Uh, We can't do an experiment. All we can do is observe light and very rarely, you know, uh, meteorites fly into Earth and we can collect those and we go to maybe a planet or two. That's it. So it's really based on light. So light is a fossil. It's a record that traces and tracks the conditions, not only of everything that's encountered since it was created, but actually its own origin story itself so the conditions under which light was produced that we call the cosmic microwave background radiation Mm -hmm. the three kelvin cmb that i study uh that is imprinted encoded like a message fossil dna that's traveling through time and space to reach my telescope once Mm -hmm. it reaches us we can divine what it was made of now there's multiple types of of radiation that share properties in common with light So using light, we can actually, quote unquote, only go back to about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, not to the first three minutes, not to the first second. Mm -hmm. And that's because the universe, when the cosmic microwave background or CMB was produced, was an opaque plasma. It was comprised of electrons and protons and plasmas, and plasmas are opaque to the propagation of light. So the universe had to cool off for those electrons to combine with the protons to create hydrogen. Hydrogen Mm -hmm. is neutral. It allows light to pass through it. And that's when the CMB, if you like, was released and started traveling towards our telescopes on Earth. Now, what we look at when we look through a telescope is we're seeing the conditions when these things were created. So to look farther back than 400,000 years after the Big Bang, we really need a different form of radiation. So Mm -hmm. I always say it's like you're looking at a mirror. You can't see through the mirror. Right. Because the mirror is kind of like a plasma. It's got all these electrons that are conducting and they sh- mm-hmm. they're reflecting light back to you. But if someone, uh, your next door neighbor, you know, behind the, the, the mirror uh, has a party and pops a bottle of champagne, you can hear it. You can hear that pop. You can hear that explosion through a different form of radiation that in our case is in the form of gravitational radiation. And yes. so you had on the, uh, the, the great Ray Weiss talking about mm-hmm. LIGO. Those are waves of gravity identical to the ones that LIGO detected from the in spiral of two black holes yes. uh, occurring over about a quarter of a second. So 250 mm-hmm. milliseconds. Now the energy of gravitational waves is proportional on the numerator to the amount of matter so to speak yeah. and on the mm-hmm. denominator it's proportional to the acceleration or the rate of change um uh, of that of that matter distribution has to be have uh, certain properties associated with its matter distribution mm-hmm. and if that change you shake your fist at somebody you're generating gravitational waves right How, uh, now he detected it from uh, and his teammates it's very important uh, they detected two approximately 30 solar mass black holes colliding together releasing about 59 black hole energies worth of light or combining Mm -hmm. rather to become a 59 solar mass black hole, a giant spherical black hole. But that one black solar mass that was left over in the equation was converted to pure vibrations of space and time. Now, if that that could be done with two puny black holes, imagine an entire galaxy colliding together with billions and and hundreds of billions or maybe a trillion black hole solar mass equivalent. Or Mm -hmm. imagine every galaxy, perhaps a hundred billion galaxies, each one with half a trillion star solar masses within it. Mm -hmm. Imagine those coming together and actually springing out from existence in nothingness 
over a period of time, not uh, 250 milliseconds, but uh, a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a nanosecond. Mm -hmm. And so this would release untold amounts of gravitational radiation, allowing us to see through the otherwise opaque CMB plasma. I I was going to ask you about this. You know, now I'm not in the field of of cosmology. And so from the outside looking in, I'll tell you my perception and you tell me how wrong I am or if I'm, you know, hitting the nail on the head. From the way I see it, you know, Planck, the, the, the Planck telescope, mm-hmm. is, is now at a point where you almost can't get better measurements. Like, you could lower the error bars a little bit, mm-hmm. but the 2018 data release really narrowed down the value or, or narrowed down the properties of the CMB. Yeah. So, are you interested in, in spanning out into gravitational waves where you can then begin to find other signatures, experimental signatures of the early universe? Yeah. So what we're trying to do is use these these uh, particles of gravity, gravitational mm-hmm. waves, uh, gravitational uh, f- uh, the analog known as gravitons. Perhaps they've never been detected in quantum mm-hmm. state. Uh, we are essentially doing exactly as you said. We're trying to use these fossil relics from the early universe traveling at the speed of light, as we know from LIGO and other experiments. They travel at the speed of light. That means they don't decay into anything else. Right. We could use those as fossil relics of this early bygone time and in so doing proceed back further in time than ever than ever observed before mm-hmm. and, and that will give you indications about the very very moment that this so-called you know, we'll, we'll call it inflation the inflationary period happened right right um and we can you briefly describe i, I use inflation but can you briefly describe to people what what i even mean by that yeah, so the question of the initial conditions of the universe is really a, an eternal one, ironically. It's been going on forever since Aristotle and probably before that up until the modern day. And it essentially revolves around the question of how our universe came into being as we observe it today. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle and others believed it was eternal and it existed for all time. And there wasn't really a paradox of how you went from nothing to something. Uh, then after the discovery of Hubble, in 1929, that the universe was unavoidably interpreted as expanding, thanks to data from Vesto Slipher and, and many other people, the universe was was expanding. Now, if you play that movie back, if a balloon is getting bigger, mm-hmm. it must have been smaller in the past, smaller even further in the past. If you extrapolate that equation, basically, you know, distance equals rate times time, mm-hmm. you, uh, you get, knew the rate from the expansion rate, the redshift of distant galaxies. You knew their distance, and so you could extrapolate when they were touching. All yes. these galaxies, all this matter, all this energy was all in one spot, perhaps a singularity, mm-hmm. a single quantum egg, a cosmic egg. And that uh, that existence became known as the Big Bang. Now, it turned out that the universe, even uh, assuming the Big Bang were true, which many scientists didn't take seriously until the uh, essentially the discovery of the CMB in 1965, mm-hmm. we had all these paradoxes that we couldn't understand in the context of the CMB's observations. Namely, why is the universe so uniform? Why is it true that the universe uh, could take on all sorts of different properties, but it happened to have properties that are very, very improbable from looking at a a statistical standpoint, Mm -hmm. assuming that the universe could have any properties whatsoever, we know the universe is so-called flat. It doesn't have spatial curvature. You shoot two parallel laser beams. They'll remain parallel for all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, they could be otherwise. They could eventually converge or diverge. Uh, but our universe seems fine-tuned on this razor's edge of perfection. Uh, we also didn't understand why the universe had the same temperature 
in all directions that we look, that CMB that, as you say, Planck has done exquisite work, it's actually no longer possible using the temperature data to improve upon most of what Planck has done. It's so-called mm-hmm. cosmic variance limited. There's even uh, the be- you know, a noiseless detector could not do better because there's simply local variations and statistical uncertainty that would always be present, even with a perfect detector. So what we're looking for with our telescopes uh, can no longer be confined to just looking at the temperature distribution, and instead we're looking at the polarization. Now, inflation suggests that the way that the universe got the spots that it has, that Planck has measured, Mm -hmm. is owes itself to the initial uh, perturbations, fluctuations, uncertainties in the value of what's called the inflaton field, which is Mm. what's known as a quantum field like the Higgs boson. It takes on uh, a numerical value at each point in space at a given point in time. And like the Higgs boson, it can be be quantized. It can have fluctuations where the field exists with a certain value here. It's different over there. And the later fluctuations in the CMB's uh, beautiful colorful pattern and the concomitant dark matter distribution and dark Mm -hmm. energy uh, behavior would owe themselves to the fluctuations in the stochastic behavior of this field called the inflaton. And that would have tremendous implications for explaining how the universe came to start off expanding and accelerating because it's exactly mm-hmm. the same kinds of equations that describe the currently observed state of the universe, no pun intended. Yeah. And pun that intended. Is, pun that intended. Is, <laughs> that is that the universe is not only expanding, it's expanding at an accelerating rate. Yes. Why that happened, we don't know. Uh, but the uh, the granddaddy of all expansions and accelerations would have been inflation. So we want to understand the existence or lack thereof of this period of time. That means we have to measure the imprint of gravitational waves on Mm -hmm. the photons that make up the cosmic microwave background. Yeah. Now we're a long way off of that. Are we not? Because I, I, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that you could detect those with LIGO. You need another fine tuned instrument. Um, we know Maybe we it, couldn't detect it with LIGO, as a matter of fact. The the wavelengths, they're so weak right. as the universe has expanded. Um, so every every uh, photon or every type of radiation, so photons and gravitational waves are considered radiation. This mm-hmm. isn't like nuclear radiation from a reactor or something like that. It's just right. things that propagate at the speed of light, essentially. Mm-hmm. So anything that propagates at the speed of light has two properties. One is its wavelength, and the other is its amplitude. And so the number of uh, the strength of the electromagnetic field as a wave, that's a number. It's a complex number, a vector. Uh, But nevertheless, if you think about how many photons there are in a cubic centimeter of space, as you expand that centimeter, stretch out everything inside, two things happen. One, the number density decreases as you expand the size of the box of photons. And if the photons Mm -hmm. are expanding along with space-time themselves, their energy goes down because the wavelength and the energy are interrelated to each other. And so if you double the wavelength, you have the energy. So you have two effects that take place, and we've observed that. And if you actually try to measure the density of gravitational waves today, it's a trillion times harder than using the cosmic microwave background as your space LIGO, (laughs) as -hmm. your past LIGO, where you're actually using the CMB as a sort of gravitational wave detector like LIGO. And mm-hmm. so it's a thousand, or sorry, it's a thousand to the fourth power, which is a trillion times easier to do such an experiment using the CMB as compared to today. So I, I personally doubt it will ever be possible, even with the future upgrades to LIGO, to detect yeah. the imprint of inflation via direct detection mm-hmm. of gravitation. 
Now, there are some detectors, and, and I don't remember which. Of course, we're, we're in a new field of astronomy now where these gravitational wave detectors are being built. And also, not just built, but, but you know, sort of taken from nature, if you're talking about pulsar timing arrays as well. Yeah. Um, that one of these detectors, gosh, I wish I remember which, should be able to detect the stochastic background of gravitational waves. Um, it's in the frequency band, and I'm not sure which that is, but it well, might be the, pulsar timing arrays. Yeah, pulsar timing arrays have have I've seen some results that say that could be potentially observable. Of course, it would be much easier for them to observe, you know, gravitational waves from local compact object mergers and so forth. Mm-hmm. So um, I would look for that first before I would attempt to possibly yeah. measure it. And and there's a lot of yeah a lot of work that would need to be done to to get that to the level of maturity that these searches for cosmic microwave background B-mode polarization that I've described in losing mm-hmm. the Nobel Prize, that's a much more mature approach. That doesn't mean that it's the only approach. And in fact, you'd like to have both approaches, right? You'd like to have yes. two different detectors. We failed to do that, uh, to have two different instruments that were not on the same team, so to speak. Uh, and you'd like to have a third way of getting at it. You know, so we, for example, mm-hmm. we know about how stars make elements from nuclear reactors on Earth and from observing stellar processes in space. So right. radically different technologies are needed mm-hmm. to solidify things in the scientific canon. Yes. Um, now, for people, for anyone who's confused, quick plug: check out my episode with Ray Weiss if you want to know more about LIGO. Or check out my episode with Maura McLaughlin if you want to know about Nanograph, because she was the chair of that, too, and it's a pulsar timing array. So if you're curious yeah. about how either of those two things work, um, those episodes will will do a great job of explaining what Brian and I can't in one hour. So um, <laughs> That's right. So, yes. Now, I, I, I want to talk about something else with you, Brian. You mentioned dark matter and dark energy and the way it fits into these models of the early universe. Um, I've seen in the past year a lot of, we'll say – criticism of cosmology's way of handling these two things so first i want to ask the question when i do outreach and i do a ton of it i always describe dark energy i always describe dark matter and i describe them from the point of view of how we know that that observationally they exist or a better way of saying that is is not how we know they exist but how we know that there's a a observation that indicates they should exist um, of course, people have come up with all sorts of different models to describe the things we observe. The most likely, Occam's razor, is that there's these two. And it's crazy to say that Occam's razor indicates to you that there's an invisible thing. Um, because, you know, that doesn't even seem like it, it should be something that I would say. Um, but it, it does. The simplest solution to this is that there's some matter that, in, in the case of dark matter, some matter that's made up of, of um, some subatomic particles that we maybe don't quite understand how they work or how they interact with one another. And, and for some reason, it is permeating all of space uniformly around the other visible matter. I, I don't know. But, Brian, the question to you I have is, I can explain just perfectly fine why, how we observe these things, how we theorize they should be there. But I don't understand from a cosmological standpoint, do the models predict that they should be there? And did it predict them from first principles? Or, are the do the critics um you know are they saying something valid which is that parameters seem to be fine tuned in a lot of cosmological models yeah so there's a, a lot there and i'll try to you know i'll try to answer your second question first and your first question 
Um, I won't answer at all. Uh, okay. I just did not. No, no, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> I don't even remember the order of the questions anymore. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, so you're talking about dark matter, and then you're talking roughly, loosely speaking, about fine tuning, which naturally segues into what's called the anthropic principle. So yeah. um, let's let's talk about dark matter first. So dark matter um, is seemingly necessitated by the observations of both the cosmic microwave background. The fluctuations that we actually see in the temperature of the microwave background owe themselves to differential um, to differential uh, pressure sound waves that are per- uh, percolating throughout the universe when it was 400,000 years old over a period of time of about 25, 30,000 years. Yeah. And those fluctuations are driven by ordinary matter, which we know exists, protons, neutrons, croutons, my favorite particle. Oh, no, there's no crouton particle. Mm. but um, uh, And then there's uh, other particles, neutrinos, light, <laughs> And dark matter. And if uh-huh. you don't include the dark matter, then that then the universe will have a radically different pattern of microwave background fluctuations as you trace their appearance on the sky. So we know that there has to be dark matter. From so the, the CMB, th- this is an important point. So the CMB directly predicts that dark matter should exist. And then simultaneously, the experiments uh, that show that dark matter theoretically exists around galaxies and clusters of galaxies. Um, those two agree on the existence of dark matter. Very yes. Well. Yeah, they agree very well. Now, the problem is we haven't had a dark matter particle come into our detectors on Earth that has enough of the right properties. I should say we've detected dark matter pro- particles. We've mm-hmm. absolutely detected them directly. They're called neutrinos. Yes. So neutrinos travel close to the speed of light, they don't interact with light. Mm-hmm. That's uh, why they're uh, they're they're neutral, so they have no electric charge, and um and they're massive, so they have all the properties of dark matter uh, that are required. And I wrote an article about that that I illustrated on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. That mm-hmm. um is is sort of the most interesting thing that about dark matter is that we've already discovered it in the form of neutrinos. Not to say we know everything we need to know about neutrinos yet. That's critical, and yeah. we are trying to do that with our CMB mm-hmm. experiments. Now, the other question of, of you know whether or not the universe exhibits fine-tuning is something that really got brought up in the uh, 1970s for, for mm-hmm. essentially the first time. And that was whether or not the universe had properties that were conducive to the existence of observers that could ask the question of whether or not there were properties of the universe that were conducive to observers, uh, kind of an infinite regress there. So Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't expect to find yourself in a universe where you're not uh, forbidden to exist. And so cosmologists and, and astronomers and physicists started to think about, well, are there ways to get the existence of our universe, are there ways to get it from a statistical ensemble of universes that could be called the multiverse or originally called the um, the, the, the megaverse uh, and, and the concept of many, many worlds or many, many mm-hmm. universes, an old one. Uh, but, but in particular, uh, sort of extending the Copernican idea, the Copernican principle is really asserting that the that the Earth is not the center of the universe, and and somewhat you know take it further, and they'll say there's nothing particularly special about our universe, uh, about our our Earth either, right? There's mm-hmm. millions and billions of planets in our solar system and our universe um, that we can see with our telescope. So why couldn't there be? And there's billions of galaxies. Why couldn't there be billions or infinite number of universes? Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there were a, there was an extension of the theory of inflation called eternal inflation uh, that on Andre Linde and others had worked on, which suggested that you could essentially get 
an infinite number of universes in addition to our our universe, and every one of those universes would have an infinitude of possible laws of, of nature that could vary from point to point within what Linde called these pocket universes. Mm-hmm. And he's gone quite far along in this, and that would explain, you know, we're just essentially a cosmic lucky lottery winner that we happen to have the properties that are just right for life and actually seemingly fine-tuned, although some people say it's not fine-tuning is not as radical as you might think. But nevertheless, there's six numbers that describe, or seven numbers perhaps that describe, uh, that could not vary by much more than their current value in order to have life as we know it, <clears throat> hydrocarbon life, etc., that exists on a watery planet, that that would be very improbable if you know, if every one of these, um, if every one of these parameters, these seven different parameters, had a one in a thousand chance of being taking on the value that it does, then the probability that all of them conspire to have exactly the values that we observe in the universe might, you might plausibly say, is you know, is a th- one over a thousand to the mm-hmm. seventh power, which you know, ten to the twenty-first. These are very, very small numbers. And so, yeah. that, so that level of fine-tuning simultaneously is what drives people to take seriously the multiverse hypothesis. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say is, you know, you, so there's essentially two solutions to this. Either number one, it was fine-tuned by some being who <laughs> knew that the only way for us beings to be here is if it was fine-tuned to have the perfect parameters. Or, as you were, you know, getting to, um, there's an infinite number of universes and we just so happen to exist in the one that is fit for us. Because yeah. it is fit for us. Right. Yeah. And there's no uh, a way to expect that we would be found otherwise. Now, I happen to think that the multiverse um, shares a lot of uh, in common with that other um, conjecture, which is that an omniscient, omnipotent being created, you know, our universe mm-hmm. with exactly these um, kind of the intelligent design. Um, I don't believe in intelligent design per se. Uh, and and yet I find that you f- that you will see people that exhibit the exact same fervor, almost a religious like ardor towards the towards the universe. In fact, they'll mm-hmm. go so far as to say things like Andre Linde that he would bet his life that the multiverse is correct. It's it's incredible, and he actually will say things like, "I believe those that believe in the universe." as a singular universe, they have the burden of proof. So Brennan, you have to change the name of your podcast to question mark at the end because the state of the universe is, yeah, yeah, our universe Mm -hmm. is right. So he says the burden of proof is on you to prove that there's a monoverse, not a multiverse. And I I think that these things hearkened in my mind to religious questions of faith. And I'm not alone in that. And I, I get a lot of, you know, kind of hate mail or hate tweets or comments. You know, people say that and they, they view it so passionately. The how dare you talk about uh, when in reality, many scientists have, have described it as a religion. I don't go so right. far as to say that, but I will say that people nowhere else will people talk about, you know, betting their life on the on the mass of the proton. I mean, you don't see that in science, yeah. but this touches upon the existence or lack thereof. As Steven Weinberg said about the, he's probably the the foremost um, proponent in some sense of of the a prediction that the multiverse could explain the anthropic principle. He said, you know, we didn't set out to invent the multiverse to appeal to the atheists, but it's mm-hmm. true that for one reason or another, once you start thinking about a multiverse, it does remove the necessity for benevolence built into the laws of nature or the structure of the world. Now he's an avowed militant atheist himself. And and then they'll say things like, well, if 
string theory is true, and if the multiverse is true, then it removes the necessity for a supernatural being. There are a lot of ifs there. I mean, there's zero observational support currently for superstring theory. And as we know, there's no evidence for the multiverse yet. We have not detected inflationary gravitational waves. That's the subject of the memoir that I have written in Losing the Nobel Prize, uh, how the universe is uh, is organized and whether or not it's unique and singular is, in my mind, the greatest quest that we could be on. And how lucky are we that people like me get to study this with experimental data? Yeah, it, man, it's really cool. It's re- you know, cosmology. I, I think I maybe have told you this before, but you know, cosmology was like right on the cusp of the second thing that I wanted to be interested in. <laughs> right. The, the the problem, of course, is was for me. It was like um, when I was applying to colleges, I didn't. I don't have any idea what. Like, I had no idea what to do. I didn't either. No, I had I, no idea. I like, like I barely know how to fill an application, let alone <laughs> land land somewhere that you know people are working on the thing I want to work on. Right. Um. And so fate sort of led me away. But you know, I have a long time in this academic career of mine. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. But you you many know, careers. Yep. Yes. It. I. I want to mention to you a, a quote that I. I find. To be one that has generated a ton of, of response. It was a quote from a Scientific American article. And, and I just want to get your thoughts on mm-hmm. this particular quote and, and, and whether or not this person knows, I guess, what they're talking about. Um, because the, a lot of the criticism about this particular article, I don't know if you read it. Um, the, the title was Cosmology Has Some Big Problems. Mm-hmm. I know Sean Carroll was commenting on it. A lot mm-hmm. of other cosmologists. The, the quote is this. The, the answer lies in a peculiar, peculiar, geez, that's a weird one, features, feature of cosmological physics that is not often remarked. A crucial function of theories such as dark matter, dark energy, and inflation, each in its own way tied to the Big Bang paradigm, is not to describe known empirical phenomena, but rather to maintain the mathematical coherence of the framework itself while accounting for observations. Um, mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, fundamentally, they are names for something that must exist insofar as the framework is assumed to be valid. How do you respond to that? Um, so I'm, I'm not sure who, who said that or, or who, it was who, um, I, Bjorn Ekberg. He's a uh-huh. philosopher of science, not yeah, a cosmologist so, by trade. Right. Yeah, I think I recall hearing something about that. Um, I don't know him personally, but, you know, some of that smacks me as similar to sentiments expressed by Max Tegmark, who's essentially asserted with regard to the multiverse that not only um, does everything that uh, is mathematically possible exist, but um, but it actually reduces existence to mathematical quantities. In other words, you are nothing but an assembly of protons, which are themselves mm-hmm. assemblies of quarks, etc. Mm-hmm. And all those things, a quark is fungible, I can take any quark and exchange it with another up quark for an Mm -hmm. up quark, and Brandon will look exactly the same. And so you can keep doing that with every particle in the universe. Now ask the the question, you know, you are unique, but your quarks are not unique. In fact, they're described by a handful of properties that you learn in in your first year in grad school. They have spin, they have mass, they have charge. And so what are those? Those are just mathematical quantities that describe it. So you can replace every quark by its charge, its mass, its its spin, etc. And therefore, everything is built upon mathematical frameworks. And therefore, since anything mathematically can be expressed and encoded and translated into equations and the equations can be their their truth or falsity 
can be ascertained almost by computer, then it must be possible to to essentially reduce all of existence to an equation, a mathematical mm-hmm. equation. And he goes through this and what he calls, I believe, the fourth level of the multiverse. So he's got four different classes of multiverse, starting with very plausible definitions, mm-hmm. basically beyond everything beyond which we can see, all the way up to this mathematical universe, which is um, everything has a parallel structure in math, and therefore everything is mathematical, and all mathematical structures can exist. Um, so I don't personally buy that. I think it's it's overly simplistic. I think you know just as you can take um, a little bit of, uh, of of two different chemicals and you can mix them together, and the chemicals themselves might be you know totally harmless. You can take some you know hydrogen, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and oxygen, put those together. But if you attempt to take you know eat you know pure hydrogen or pure oxygen, you mean you'll die, right? So there, yes. there, it has to do with the arrangements and permutations, and you know, he he addresses some of those attributes. But yes. this guy that you're quoting, Bjorn, over there, it sounds very remarkably similar. That he's essentially asserting that the the you know the possibility of you know fecundity, those things that can exist, mm-hmm. have a reality that's independent of whether or not we like them or we can appraise them using scientific means. I personally, I know a lot of people feel similarly. If you can't observe it, you know, um, people used to say, you know, shut up and calculate, you know, just go and mm-hmm. do the calculation. I say shut up and measure, you know, go yes. and try to measure things. And that will be the closest that you can come to physical reality. And it may be completely delightful to talk about parallel universes and multiverses. But if they predict something that is not possible to measure, forget about whether or not it's falsifiable, as Karl Popper would say, but just you can't even predict a result of a measurement then I find that to be not worth my time and I can consider it to be, you know, to be science or not. But, but in my case, it's not something I'm, I'm concerned with. I want to measure things while mm-hmm. I have the ability to do so. And I want to rule out, and that's what we do. We rule out theories. Our job, my job is to kill theorists, uh, you mm-hmm. know, loving creatures, kill their darlings as yes. authors say. So, I, yeah. I try to convince people of that. Like when I'm in your position, in your shoes, uh, on other shows, getting mm-hmm. interviewed, I try to tell people, we don't make careers by agreeing. We right. make careers yeah. by ruining. Right. We make careers by ripping down the the known configuration of knowledge and rebuilding it. That's right. Um, and and so, what you're left with is truth. And that's exactly what the scientific method is about. Yes. So you, mean, you can imagine that Galileo would say things like, you know, there's some angel that pushes things that you could never see that causes them to move with relative velocities, you know. Mm-hmm. But instead he said, here's an experiment you can do. You can go on a boat. And you can have the boat set off in motion relative to the uh, coastline. And on the coastline, you can have a jar with some flies in it. And in the boat, you can have a jar with some flies in it. And you'll see that they're moving with the same average velocity in the boat mm-hmm. as on the shore. That means their relative velocity is is dependent on the uh, position of the observer, et cetera. So he not only predicted something, uh, but you know, other people like Newton later on would conjecture that Things in the fixed heavens stay as they are because there are angels yes. that are unseeable. And of course, you know, as I as I always joke, you know, I mean, Newton Newton had a, his fair share of, of great blunders, but it's sure that you know he was probably the greatest scientist of all time, in uh, a very accurate way. But he also dabbled in the occult and he mm-hmm. dabbled in uh, horoscopes and and of course in um, alchemy. So um, he was a very very complicated person. And and I think the misconception that I do my best to try to disabuse people of. And losing the Nobel Prize and a lot of my public speaking is this notion that scientists like you, like me, are ineffable, ineffable 
um, you know, creators and brilliant that never make mistakes because I think that contributes to this false narrative. And I think that actually precludes yes. people from going into science because they say, I'm never going to be as smart as Brandon. I'm mm-hmm. never going to be like Brian. I'm not as smart as they are. They never make mistakes. I made a mistake just the other day when I tried to, you know, do this, you know, make this or make that work in my mm-hmm. car. And I think that's actually a, a, a very important um, uh, kind of a counter argument to this constant portrayal of scientists as flawless and blameless. Yeah, and it also does more harm than good to be portrayed that way, because in the sense that uh, you know, a, a topical example is is Donald Trump recently, um, you know, speaking about the the path of the hurricane. I don't, I don't know if you saw, but he shared a photo of. No, I mean, yeah, I heard something about that. I mean, the thing I love the most about astronomy is like, there's no, there's no Republican constellation out there. Of course, there's no Democratic (laughs) comet. Give us time. Give us time. We'll rename Taurus or something. Yeah, you know, because (laughs) the bull, the bull market. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But yeah, before we, I I know I don't have you for much longer, but I want to cover two more things that I think are supremely important. Number one, I want to talk about your book, and we'll do that second. And then the first, I want to talk about the Hubble constant because, you know, this is, I think I'm safe to say this is maybe the biggest accepted disagreement. And I say accepted because you do. You have two um, sides that have, are finding different values for the same thing and, and trying to figure out where the discrepancy comes from. And neither one of them seems to be in direct violation of something that the other can point out. At least that's how it looks from the the outside looking in. Yeah. Right. And so can you can you briefly describe what is the Hubble constant and can you describe what are the two ways in which we are trying to narrow down this number? So uh Hubble uh, for whom this constant is named after as I said early, he measured the recessional velocities of galaxies. And he plotted them on a straight line as a function of their distance. So he found for galaxies that are moving away from us with a given speed that they're at a certain distance and something moving away at twice that speed was at twice that distance. So it's a straight line that goes through zero. um, And the slope of that line is essentially related to the Hubble constant, which Mm -hmm. itself is an extrapolation of the present day value of what's called the Hubble parameter which can change over time depending on the universe's energy density and mm-hmm. the constituents of the universe, if it's matter versus radiation versus neutrinos versus something called curvature. Yes. Um, so, uh, so he extrapolated that. He was famously off by a factor of about seven. He could not uh, constrain you know, his delight, and actually he overestimated that number. And the problem with overestimating it is that the age of the universe – is essentially the inverse of the Hubble constant. So mm-hmm. a big Hubble constant, as he measured, meant a young universe. In fact, it was younger, as I point out in my book, it was younger than some of the stars and, and objects in the universe that we knew to exist. So it's like mm-hmm. if you are younger, if your parent, your father is younger than you, it, it didn't make much sense. Right. And so people didn't take the Big Bang very seriously because of these errors that he made. Of course, what was the source of the error? It was actually in part due to dust. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that now. Uh, but uh, so this number is critically important. It sets the evolution, the size scale, the, the time scale of our universe. It's critically important to get it right. There's two ways you can do it. You can measure things that are nearby us, relatively speaking. I mean, you're talking about billions mm-hmm. of light years away. Yeah. Or you can measure things near close to the Big Bang when the CMB was produced and try to extrapolate forward based on very simple, I mean, not simple, but elementary laws of 
general relativity, how those should predict to behave today if you go out and measure it. And the interesting thing is you get two answers that are in extreme tension with one another. They do not agree with one another. And it's far beyond a fluke probability that one is just too low Mm -hmm. and one is just too high by random chance. The odds of that are like one in 20 million or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and – you know, every time that you get better measurements, one side gets better measurements, it squishes the error bars in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. right? So they, they continue to grow further and further apart as the error lessens. Yeah, exactly. So they're getting worse and, and worse as time goes on. Um, uh, so I think it's I think it's crucial to point out that either team could make mistakes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like either one has, right. which is leading people to start to think that there might be some you know, undiscovered physics, that some new field, some new behavior, mm-hmm. a type of radiation, perhaps a type of force field, energy field that was active in the early universe. That's no longer active or perhaps is active now that wasn't active. So it's very exciting. And we just don't know the answer right now, or it could be something prosaic, not a fluke, but it could be the instruments are contaminated by dust or the, or the observations rather contaminated by dust, or it could be that there are some systematic effects in the calibration of these instruments that Mm -hmm. we don't understand. And so uh, it's crucial. And so these teams have broken up their, their data. And I've talked with Adam Reese, um, uh, who's, uh, who's, who's a good friend of mine. And, and we were both quoted in this piece for symmetry magazine recently. It's a and great said, piece. It's a, yeah, it's a good piece. it was, they did a great job. And in the article, I say, you know, there's so much tension and anxiety. You know, I think the thing that benefits us the most would be a good psychotherapist. Yes, of course. I saw that. Um, so yeah, you know, people, maybe people don't understand the, the big, if they look at the numbers, they'll see, you know, like a 67 versus a 73, and with no content, with no, you know, idea about what the units are. But the point is they see a small differential. Can you explain what that 9% difference means for the age of the universe? Yeah, so uh, the the difference between these two values in absolute terms is about 9%. But both are claiming that they have an uncertainty, you know, of a, of a few percent, maybe mm-hmm. even less in the case of the CMB measurements. Um, what it's going to take, uh, and so the discrepancy between the uppermost level that the low value could have and the lowermost value is that the upper value could have is at this five sigma level, which is mm-hmm. you know roughly a part in twenty million of being a fluke that each yeah. one fluctuated anomalously low or high. So I think it's going to take more data. I think it's going to take independent data, and I'm hoping that our Simon's Observatory uh, will help to shed light, no pun intended, on this controversy by measuring something completely different. Planck measured the temperature anisotropy. Mm-hmm. We could measure the polarization anisotropy, and that will tell us uh, things with a completely different angle towards how many systematic effects could contribute to the cosmic measurements. I don't know, besides getting more and more supernova to blow up or, or measuring more Cepheids and understanding the nuclear physics of Cepheid variables, how much better the optical astronomers can do. They've mm-hmm. already done quite well. They're at the percent level. We're better in terms of absolute. But I think you know you can have a very accurate measurement of something and then it could just be measuring the wrong thing because a precise measurement that's measuring something inaccurately. I'm mm-hmm. hoping that something more exciting like new physics will be at work. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly interesting. And now we have LIGO trying to make measurements and they're yeah. splitting the difference. Um, yeah. But of course, their error bars are large, so it could yeah. swing either way with more data. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about a million other things and I yeah, could yeah. talk to you about a million other things. But yeah, I got to run soon. Yes. To wrap up the conversation. Okay. Um, I saw, I, I asked this question over email. I said, is there a reception? Like, is there, is the Nobel Committee noticing you and the efforts you're making? Are they responding? Are they trying to change anything? 
Um, and you pointed me to some comments that were made by um, Goran Hansen, the Royal yep. Swedish Academy of Sciences, the Secretary General of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. And, mm-hmm. and he responded to an article you wrote. The article is called, Should All Nobel Prizes Be Canceled for a Year? Um, first off, I want to know, like, what were you thinking when he replied to that? Were you thinking, oh, my God, my message is getting through? What was the thought you you had? Knowing it was, that? it was, uh, you know, of course, I'm always. I had been told by many people, including Nobel Prize winners and Nobel nominators, that the Nobel Prize Committee agrees with almost all the all the claims and suggestions that I make in the book. So losing the Nobel Prize is a pun, a play on words. Mm-hmm. It means exactly what it says that I lost the Nobel Prize, arguably through the combination of unfortunate events and misinterpretations that I was subject to, as I described. But also that aspects of the Nobel Prize in three of the chapters of the thirteen chapters, three of them describe flaws and and really bad flaws in the Nobel Prize as I see it. Uh, how it's overlooked people that that did great work, uh, that has uh, particularly excluded minorities and women, uh, and misattributed their discoveries and only attributed their discoveries to their male advisors and and colleagues, and and how that's uh, detrimental to the way that science is perceived in the public. Now, uh, to get a reply from the Nobel Committee uh, from the you know perhaps the first time in history that the Nobel Committee has had to answer f- to these to these you know discussions and these claims that I make in the book, that was very gratifying because it mm-hmm. meant that I'd gotten their attention, I'd pricked a nerve, and that yeah. they were taking it seriously. Unfortunately, his response to my claims was very shallow, in my opinion, yes, because he was, he was essentially saying it all comes down to money, so we should just give the money to the other people, and then uh, we should you know do not deny these people these prizes, but they were dead. So we should just give the money to their estate. I thought it was very shallow. Yeah, was- yeah. You know, one of the things that turned me off was um, when he was talking about rectifying past wrongs. He very, very obviously omitted what I consider to be the biggest wrong that could be righted tomorrow, which is that Jocelyn Bell Burnell doesn't have a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Um, he omitted that from the conversation, and then mm-hmm. in in he never responded to you when you brought it up. And that is one thing that that could easily be rectified and isn't being rectified. And it indicates to me that maybe, although they're aware of the changes, they probably aren't making any. No, I don't think that they want to. And and actually, I've I've heard from a friend of mine who attended Nobel ceremonies in the past. He said he got one of the guys on the committee drunk, and mostly it's men uh, on mm-hmm. the committee. And some of them, one of them got drunk. And he said, you know, a lot of the times I have to tell you, we wait until we wait so long. In contrast to what Alfred Nobel, he wanted the prizes to be given the year after the discovery was made. We can mm-hmm. talk about that some other time. But he says, we know we're not going to do that. And sometimes when there's four people and we know because of these rules that we impose on ourselves, not coming from you know the laws of thermodynamics or anything, we just made up these arbitrary rules that only three people can get it. We know if one dies, we'll have our our decision will be made for us. So we often wait until somebody dies. I thought that was very craven. Wow. And, and yeah, uh, that's... you know, I don't know who said it, but I've had people off the record tell me that they agree. 100% that they wish it would change. There are some very good people in the Nobel Committee, and then there are people that love the status quo because, as I say in the book, it's the, the Nobel Prize is both a monopoly. There's nothing else like it. I don't care how much money the prize is given for science. Any winner, it's been said, of the Breakthrough Prize, which is worth three times the Nobel Prize, he mm-hmm. or she would exchange her, uh, their prize money for a fragment, a fraction of a Nobel Prize mm-hmm. because that's eternal fame, glory, as I've talked yeah. about. They, they uh, almost treat the Nobel Prize like a religion. There's a, a, a holiday every year when it's awarded. It's awarded mm-hmm. on, the, on the death 
day, not the birthday of the founding father of the religion, which is Alfred Nobel. Yep. And then you bow down and you get a gilded graven image of this founding father. And I think it's funny. I say it kind of tongue in cheek, but it's true. People don't like to give up their religions. And the Nobel Prize is afflicting, ironically, scientists uh, such as many of my colleagues who I know and love. And I don't critique any of the winners. It's not their fault they won. In fact, you can't even nominate yourself, which when I was uh, asked to nominate winners, uh, you know, that crimped the number of winners by by one. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but (laughs) nonetheless, I think it needs drastic reform. We're going to find out in about a week, you know, who won this year. They're making slow reforms. You know, uh, Donna Strickland won it last year. First woman in over 50 years to win it. And uh, but I point out, you know, every winner of the Nobel Prize would have to be a woman for the next 75 years to equal the number of men and women to get those to be the same. So they have a long way to go. And I hope that they'll move in the right direction. I don't want to kill the Nobel Prize. Not at all. I want to use what its lustrous appeal to society as a way to remove the potential tarnish that has befallen things like the Olympics and the Oscars and the and the World Cup, et cetera. So mm-hmm. that's that. Thank you very much, Brian. Yeah, for yeah, me Brian. Thanks for coming on. Uh, people, go buy the the paperback if you have the hard if you have the hardcover. Go buy the paperback anyway. If you don't have it, go buy the paperback Deeper. and check it yep. out. It's yeah, yes. <laughs> but anyway, I appreciate you for doing this. I appreciate you for listening, and and we're out.